You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. Uh, uh, welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Uh, my name is uh, Tim Lorden, and I am uh, the Executive Director of the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, which is a nonprofit organization. It is not the Congressional Internet Caucus itself, which is a congressional member organization chaired by uh, Congressman Goodlatte and Congresswoman Eshoo on the House side, and the host, the chairs of the Congressional Internet Caucus on the Senate side are Senators Leahy and Thune. Um, and we're separate organizations, but we kind of share ideas about uh, congressional education on, on key and critical Internet policy issues. It has been, I think, like about eight years since we've done an actual Senate building briefing, maybe ten, I can't recall. But it's rare that we do these. We do about every couple of weeks we do a briefing on the House side or in the Capitol building. But this is kind of unusual for us to come all the way over to the Senate to do a briefing. But this is where the action is on this particular issue. The name of this issue is um, on your program is the expiration of the Internet tax moratorium, what new Internet and mobile phone taxes will mean for constituents and for the economy. And that was pretty much as short as I can make it. I apologize for that. Uh, We wanted to be clear that this wasn't some general net tax discussion because there's another uh, Internet tax, remote sales tax, Internet sales tax issue that sometimes gets confused with this issue, which is the there's a a bill going through uh, Congress as well that would allow states to collect remote sales tax over the internet for goods goods and goods and services. So we wanted to be clear that these are very kind of different uh, substantively issues um, and, and not be confusing. But today we're talking about the internet tax moratorium. Um, and before I get going on that particular issue, uh, let me just also thank uh, Senator Thune, who's the host of this particular room today, and we really appreciate him getting the room for us so we could do this briefing, and also Senator Leahy, with whom we share ideas on these issues, and the other co-chairs of the Congressional Internet Caucus. We don't take positions on legislation regulation, though the Congressional Internet Caucus co-chairs um, on occasion, rarely, kind of find uh, mind share on certain issues. And on what the, inter- the extension of the Internet tax moratorium happens to be one of them. Um, I left on your, de- your chairs um, a joint dear colleague letter. Um, actually goes to the, the House and Senate leadership from all four co-chairs, uh, Leahy, Thune, Goodlatte, and Eshoo, um, asking for the extension of the Internet sales tax moratorium. So um, that's, that's the one issue that we, we, we found that they agree on. Um, they don't agree on a whole lot of issues specifically, but that's one of them, and we thought we'd make that available to you. This issue um, has been – oh, the hashtag for today is NetTax if you want to follow it, and you can follow us at netcaucus.org. And our speaker's um, Twitter information is on the program as well. So um, this issue has been around since th- almost the beginning of the Congressional Internet Caucus itself, um, since 1998. Um, it turned out that states were imposing um, taxes on the burgeoning Internet and on the access to the Internet, as opposed to, you know, maybe a good, uh, some uh, some uh, pair of shoes you bought over the Internet, but on access to the Internet, whether it's your Fios connection or your DSL connection, um, or now um, your mobile phone connection. Um, and those are the types of access taxes we're talking about. Basically, the access taxes, um, uh, the, the access to the Internet over your ISP, your landline, over your, your data plan on your mobile phone, and we have some experts that can explain that in a little more detail. I am not a tax expert. So, and they will correct me, and Steve Del Bianco over here will correct me if I'm wrong, which I usually am. So in 1996, uh, Congress stepped in and they passed the Internet 
Tax Fairness Act, sometimes referred to as ITFA. And um, before they had done that, about 10 states started taxing um, Internet access. There's about 10 of them, and they've been grandfathered in um, since 1998, and they continue to impose access taxes on the Internet. Um, there's about there's estimated about 30,000 state municipal taxing entities that could impose, and in some states do impose, taxes on Internet access. Um, and the original legislation was passed by, sponsored by Senator Wyden and Congressman Chris Cox, um, bipartisan support. It has been, it was extended in 2007, and um, it was extended in 2007 until November 1st, 2014, which is actually, I don't know how many days away, like about a month before that expires. And once that does, states will be able to impose taxes on your constituents' phone data phone plans, on your, their Internet access, and that's what, and that, unless the Senate acts, the House has already passed in July. Sorry, did you? Whoa, that's loud. Yeah. Did you use the um, the original date, November first? I did. However. Okay. However, the House passed in July um, the extension of the moratorium, so they've done their work. So now we're here in the Senate, um, and the Senate needs to do its work. However, uh, Senate has recessed, and it won't well, come back. Actually, before. it came from the Senate, and then the House passed it. I'm sorry. I've, the um, the extension came from the Senate, and then the House passed it. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So they 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 extended the Senate has extended it beyond the election. So now um, the shot clock stands. They gave us gave them a little more than 30 days. Now the shot clock stands at there are 72 days, 11 hours, and like 50 minutes left to pass the moratorium extension for the Senate. Otherwise. This thing kicks into gear. Now, again, as I said earlier, my organization doesn't take positions on legislation and regulation. Uh, we don't take positions on behalf of any Internet stakeholder, although we try to host discussions about the Internet generally. But taxing the Internet um, strikes us as a very important issue that not sh- should not be done lightly. So we wanted to give a briefing on the moratorium access issue um, and get a panel of speakers who can talk about why, what it is, why it's important, and whether Congress should extend it, and if so, by how much. Um, so we put together an all-star group of folks. Um, to my left is Scott McKay, and Scott is a principal with uh, KSC Partners. Uh, Scott is a tax expert. He used to be the tax guy for the National uh, National Council for State Legislatures. And before that, he has some political acumen. He worked for Senator uh, Jeffords um, from Vermont um, on an infinitely more complex issue, which is uh, – uh, dairy policy and environmental policy. So that Scott is right to my left. Next to him is Katie McAuliffe, who's the federal affairs manager for Americans for Tax Reform, and she's also executive director of Digital Liberty. And Digital Liberty does a lot of issues like broadband, uh, Fourth Amendment issue, privacy, security, you name it. Um, and then next to her is uh, Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, who's vice president and chief research policy officer um, for the Minority Media and Telecommunications Council. Um, I'm familiar with Dr. Dr. Turner's work, um, with her work from the Joint Center for Economic Studies, One Economy, and a variety of other organizations, and she's an expert on a lot of these different issues. So, you know, with that really tortured, long introduction, 
Um, I'm going to just start going to the speakers. I mean, there's, we're going to have a discussion. We'll save like 15 minutes at the end uh, for any questions you may have, and then we'll get you out here no later than um, 72 days and 11 hours before the moratorium goes into effect, which is one hour from now. So, I'm Scott. Tim, thanks. Um, so Tim has asked us to keep it fairly brief so that we can have some, some dialogue, and I think we're all going to do that. Uh, I just want to make three or four key points here at, at the beginning before we open it up for dialogue and discussion. And if, if you think back, uh, Tim and I are sort of betraying our age when we talk about, you know, we were pretty young when this whole issue first came up, and you can see that times have changed since then. But, I mean, so back then, we had this new thing called the Internet. Nobody really knew what it was, and when companies started selling it to consumers, the states were like, well, is it a telecom service? Is it information service? Is it, what is it? And they started putting it in these buckets, and, the, and local governments started getting interested in taxing it, and all of a sudden, the companies that were selling this were facing these enormous, complex tax burdens, where they were actually being forced by the states to pay out of pocket, retroactively go back and tax it. And when this started happening, Congress said, wait a minute, we need a timeout to figure this all out. And because states had these really burdensome tax policies on telecom and other services, there was a need to sort of let this infant industry develop. Um, I've done a number of studies over the past 10 years looking at the wireless industry and the taxation of wireless consumers. And it's really quite striking that the average tax rate for wireless consumers on their voice services average nationwide is 17%, which is almost two and a half times the average uh, state and local sales tax rate. So there's this disparity, and there was this concern that if we just didn't do anything to stop this parade to tax this new service, that consumers would be burdened with these very high taxes. And um, companies would be burdened with trying to figure out, like you said, Tim, there's thousands of state and local taxing jurisdictions, each with their own rules and definitions, and it would have been very uh, uh, detrimental to the development of what many people 15 years ago thought was going to be uh, a very important and dynamic industry for the United States economy. I don't think anyone back then actually could have predicted just how important the Internet and Internet access and getting people connected was going to be for the U.S. economy. But nonetheless, the, the moratorium was, was put in place. Um, and I think a funny thing happened on the, on the uh, afterward is that Initially, it was like, well, this is an infant industry, and I don't think anybody would make that argument anymore. And what happened was people started doing studies about what is the impact of this medium on the economy, on productivity, on businesses' ability to grow, and on job creation. And one of the reasons there's such a strong bipartisan support, as Tim mentioned, within the Internet Caucus, and in fact across the entire Congress, is because these studies, and these are not just, you know, conservative economists or, or liberal economists, there's a really broad-based economic data out there showing that access to the Internet and being able to connect as many people as possible to the Internet has enormous network benefits because obviously the more people are connected, the more they can interact with each other and with businesses, and you create like this this virtuous cycle where, you know, for instance, you can provide government services cheaper. Um, you can promote competition in sales of goods and services, and there's all – I was at the wireless trade show two weeks ago. There's just an explosion of entrepreneurs out there developing applications to run over in the wireless space 
all of it depends on as many people as possible being connected. So what started out as a, a sort of a, a time out to help this industry develop has sort of turned into, you know, this is a very, very successful national policy to get people connected so that we have all these economic benefits, and why would we want to jeopardize that by letting the moratorium expire? And so that's sort of where we are today. Now, as Tim said, the moratorium was going to expire on November 1st, but um, because they wanted to push it till after the election, there was a short-term extension until December 11th. But the, the risk, of course, is that once we get into the lame duck and we start getting into the politics, if that December 11th date is missed and the moratorium is allowed to expire, then we're kicking it into a new Congress, and there's going to be this gap of time potentially where – you know, bad things are going to happen. And by bad things, I mean the companies that would have to administer these taxes have sort of surveyed the states and say, what are we supposed to do if this thing uh, expires? And we, there's actually been guidance that's come back from, uh, for instance, the state of Washington, which says the minute that moratorium expires, you have to turn the tax on. Uh, we've got other states like Montana who says, our law says you have to turn the tax on, but we're going we're gonna to wait and see. And if, if nothing happens in this Congress, then you have to turn the tax on. So Montana's looking at turning it on potentially sometime in January. And then there's a whole other group of states that have written back and said, we, we think without the moratorium, our law applies. We're not going to make you do anything now, but, you know, we may tell you to turn on the tax at any time with guidance. So so this is not just a theoretical, oh, if this thing expires, we'll just come back in and retroactively, um, you know, make the moratorium retroactive to December 11th. There's going to be real issues in terms of consumers and some of your states potentially getting notices from their companies saying effective December 11th we have to turn on the tax or effective January 1st we have to retroactively impose the tax on you because the states have told us to. So this is not a theoretical issue. This is a real uh, issue that, that companies and, and consumers are going to be facing if we don't get the moratorium uh, extended on time. So it's a really it's a really important issue. That's all I had to say, Tim. So yeah, jump in. I just want to uh, ask Katie to kind of augment um, uh, Scott's Scott's perspective, and then also, you know, what are the political consequences, perhaps, um, if this, this expires? So yes, this is a very popular legislation. Um, it's been very helpful in promoting internet access and use of really when you look at the number of wired connections that pass people, it's about between 96% and 98%. However, only 86% of people choose to adopt. So one of the ways that we can help that is by keeping costs low. And by keeping costs low, we prevent taxation of the Internet, which has allowed our economy to expand. Um, unfortunately, this does get conflated with a number of issues, and we will get into that later. Um, politically... Republicans are not going to accept non-permanent or without the grandfathered states cut out. It's unacceptable, and that will not happen. That's not the way that we want to go. It should be permanent. The grandfathered states have had, since 1998, the opportunity to phase out this tax. I do not accept the argument that the states can't do this because they've had plenty of time. In fact, much more time than we usually take at the federal level to get these kinds of legislations passed. So politically, 
because both sides favor this legislation, a 10-year extension is not acceptable. Grandfather state staying in is not acceptable. That is not something that we can stand for. It hinders growth of the Internet. It hinders people's access. It's not helpful to anyone. It must be permanent, and the grandfather taxes need to go. Discussing the details of that is something that's possible, but it has to be permanent. And if it doesn't pass in lame duck, it passes next year. We aren't, we aren't going to accept something that is unacceptable. The line has been drawn. Both sides agree this 10-year extension is a word that I shouldn't say in the microphone. So I'll step back now. So, so, Dr. Lee, um, thank you, Katie. Dr. Lee, um, in the original, Scott had kind of gone over at the beginning when the Congress kind of first uh, banned these type of taxes. It said, well, the Internet's kind of a nascent medium. It's in its infancy. Let's not kill it in the cradle type, you know, arguments. Um, you know, it could potentially be um, a platform for commerce. But in the, you know, in the intervening time, you know, we realize that it's more than just for commerce. It's actually a critical lifeline for a lot of people to get access to services. In the Internet Caucus co-chair's letter that I passed out, number four, the bullet number four was a platform for civic and civic participation and civic <laughs> affairs. Um, the Internet is doing so much more than anyone had um, ever anticipated. It affects so many more constituencies, and we're, we're surprised at way people, way, the ways people get access to the Internet. Um, how, in your, in your research, how do you think that this, how things have changed from that original kind of notion of taxing access. Oh, yeah, thank, and thank you, Tim, for uh, having me here, everybody, actually, for taking time to come listen to this important conversation. Um, so let me talk about, you know, my perspective in terms of the organization and the communities that I represent with regards to this issue. Um, and so I work for the Minority Media and Telecom Council, which is particularly interested in the impact of um, media and telecom policies on people of color and more vulnerable populations. So clearly this is an issue that we care about because I think for many of you who have followed the broadband adoption debate, we've actually seen people of color uh, accessing the Internet via mobile devices far exceeding the use of other groups when it comes to um, online activity. So I just want to, like, open up and, and answer Tim's question just around three points that I think are really good bullets for everybody in this room to sort of take when you're thinking about the disproportionate impact on consumers, and in particular, those consumers that most of us in this room care about, right, those that are pretty much on the brink of um, lack of affordability of mobile services as it is today, even though it's, it's much more uh, reduced than it has been in the past. So the first bullet I want to leave you with is that clearly there's an, a cost of excessive wireless access charges on adoption. There are 30, 30 million people and upward, and this number is floated around, and I've been in this debate. I won't tell my age like the guys, but I've been around for a long time, and the, the number is still in the millions in terms of people that are not online. And that's a problem because we want them to be able to access broadband, uh, whether it's through a fixed line or wireless, which has been just a great entry point for people of color. And if we impose regressive and excessive taxation, we run the risk of people choosing between broadband and bread regular folks who have to make decision of where they're going to put the discretionary income. And as was mentioned, that's problematic because it has troubling consequences for people who require that type of access for my second point, which is around the types of social uh, uh, benefits that the Internet actually affords. So a couple years ago, I wrote a paper with the Joint Center on the social cost 
a wireless, excessive wireless taxation. And what do I mean by that? So I wanted to share a couple of statistics. Um, and I see Rob was in the room for my wireless, but I'll, I'll take, I've taken some statistics from his report. Hispanics spend roughly $18 out of every $25 on cellular service. 52% of Hispanic consumers use their smartphone uh, to watch and download and stream video versus 37% of non-Hispanic users. Um, Hispanics lead the way in wireless use in more aspects of their daily lives than uh, more than 25, 28% of Hispanic Americans have cut the cord. So they're heavily reliant on just wireless services. And 96% of Hispanic Americans consider wireless to be an essential service to their lives with nearly 9 in 10. And that's taken from my wireless, Nielsen, and other consumer reports. In terms of African Americans, close to 30% of African Americans have already cut the cord and are pretty heavy reliant on wireless services. Uh, 89% of African Americans consider their wireless service as an essential to, uh, service in their daily lives. Okay, so you're hearing the statistics. Um, 69% of African Americans use a wireless device for things related to work, school, or personal management. And a majority of African Americans use wireless service at work or at school. <laughs> now, I have a son who wants to take his wireless device to school. Ain't happening in my house, right? <laughs> but for the most part, we're seeing an over-reliance on wireless service among these populations, which then again goes back to my point of the second area, the social cost of excessive taxation. If you're using it to find a job, if you're using it for telemedicine, if you're using it to check homework, well, clearly there are some things you cannot do on a mobile device, a smart pad, that you can do on, on a PC. We're still debating that, right? But if you have a group of people that have used this as an on-ramp, then you have to consider the impact of an excessive taxation structure on their use. And then finally, you know, the last thing I want to say is, and I put this in the paper and Tim has heard me say this, in these populations, there clearly are social problems that exist, right? So to my first, my second point, we're happy to see a lot more African-American Latino communities using it to solve some of the problems related to unemployment and chronic disease, et cetera. Clearly, the folks that oppose it and who have actually uh, imposed these very disparate surcharges have been states. And we recognize that states are in need of revenue to be able to grow and address some of those social problems. But what we've said at the Joint Center and MMTC, taxing consumers is not the right answer. It's just not the right answer. And taxing something like the Internet, which for many of you in this room can attest to, provides not only the social benefit but the experimentation and the aspirations of low-income Americans and seniors and other, other vulnerable populations is not the right choice. So we also agree, I mean, I'm, we're sounding like a, a church choir in a minute, soprano, alto, and tenor. Um, but we also agree that we have to look at making this moratorium more permanent. We registered support for this moratorium when it was first introduced based on the good news that we saw in minority wireless use. And so I urge you all as we have this conversation further to think about your constituents and to think about the impact of just some of these charges on their ability to maintain and preserve and to enter into the mobile economy and ecosystem in a way that's affordable for them. So I just wanted to add on to that because I think you made some really great points when we talk about wireless access to the Internet. The numbers that I quoted earlier, uh, the, between 96 and 98, and then only 86% use, that's wired broadband. That's wired high-speed service. Right. That is not including mobile surface service. And many people brush off wireless service as if it weren't a thing. It's a thing. 
I mean, seriously, how many of us are sitting in here on our phones right now? I hope you're not looking at Facebook. I hope you're tweeting about how awesome this panel is. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, we all use these things regularly, wireless access through iPads, through anything. Um, so the data, though, fortunately, on your cell phones, on your iPads, your wireless data is not taxed. That happens to be separated from all of your other cell phone uses, which is a good thing right now because cell phone taxes are highly discriminatory. Believe this is your number. The average of 17%. And what is it? Nebraska's 22? Yeah. 24? So it keeps going up and up and up because we use our phones regularly, because they want to deny that we don't use wireless access so that they can keep taxing and so they can expand taxes on our phones. That sounds discriminatory to me. I don't know. Maybe not. But 17% average tax on your cell phone bill is ridiculous when the sales tax average is about 7%, correct? Right. Yeah, 67%. Can I just uh, jump into that? Um, just just a segue on, and I loved your comments, Kate, because that's one of the reasons why we were concerned about it. When you start looking at populations that are, on, again, the broadband and bread, I use that often when I talk about uh, our constituent groups, The it's... Again, the surcharge, with it being very disparate across the different states, and I know you'll talk about that as well, it makes it very hard for families to plan for essential services. And as many of us in this room engage in this uh, evangelical movement to get more people online, and we're seeing that over-indexing on mobile services, again, where the rates are, I mean, years ago when we did our paper, where the rates were in Illinois, I think it was, mm-hmm. was outright ridiculous when it came to trying to encourage families to look at it. And we um, did some focus groups back in the day, and people would say, well, I don't understand all these charges, and what is this? And we used to tell people, you know, these are charges that are a little ans- are very much ancillary to your general use of mobile service, but something we had to care about in order to create much more of a, um, a, a standard environment for people to choose to get online. Um, so we, we, we talked about it. You're all singing from the same choir. Um, and there's also an evangelical attempt to get people online. Um, we, we are not from, from the same church, though, um, uh, these folks here. Uh, and we try to do a diversity of opinions. So um, Scott had mentioned that he worked for Senator Jeffords, so Scott's kind of an independent. Um, Katie is, I dare I say, kind of conservative right-leaning. Um, and a and libertarian. so I've been told. Nicole, Nicole is maybe a bit on the on the progressive side. Um, very different perspectives, um, but kind of sharing the same argument. And I would say that the internet, the Congressional Internet Caucus co-chairs, since it was founded in 1996, um, have almost by and large been from very rural areas. Um, and people always find that funny. Why isn't it the until uh, Congresswoman Anna Eshoo was added in the last several years? Why wouldn't you have the tech centers like Boston, uh, you know, representatives from Boston and from California and maybe Seattle and things like that be the caucus co-chairs? Well, it turns out that Senator Mon- uh, Senator Burns from Montana, who was a long-serving co-chair, um, uh, uh, Senator Thune um, from the Dakotas, um, uh, Congresswoman uh, Congressman uh, Goodlad is from rural Virginia. Patrick Leahy from Vermont, 
realize that the Internet is very much a lifeline for their constituents to the economic future um, and in participation in, in free speech, um, in civic engagement, and frankly, democracy. And it's very, So they always viewed it as very important, um, realizing that their constituents needed to be on in access to that, that information and, and, and commerce. So let me say this. So what, what if this, these taxes, um, I don't know the 10, ta- 10 states that currently tax Internet access taxes, wouldn't it be okay, like, or, uh, tell me a little bit more, Scott, about how, what the purpose of the tax is. Like, for instance, um, you know, sometimes gas taxes all go towards, you know, building roads and infrastructure. That kind of makes sense, right? Because you're filling up the tank. Maybe, I mean, Katie might not agree with this, but, but you could see an argument where, you know, filling up the tank full of gas, you tax a little bit of the gas, it pays for the roads you drive that vehicle on. Um, is, isn't that what states are proposing or, or what the 10 t- states are doing with the tax right now? It probably goes towards some internet infrastructure, right? They're building out broadband and giga broadband in their states? No, actually, I mean, most of this, this, the, and there's actually, there were 10 back in the day, but since then, three of them have actually repealed their taxes on Internet access, so we're down to seven grandfathered states. But no, that, that money is not used, you know, it's not like a user fee that goes to pay for infrastructure. They're basically general fund uh, taxes that the states levy. It goes into the general fund and supports the general uh, purposes of the government. So, um, you know, and, and when you look at the wireless taxes too, I mean, there, there are 911 fees that go to support the 911 system. Um, and that's, you know, you have a phone, you can dial the digits 911 and talk to somebody. Um, but other than that, those, the 17% that, that across the country is the average on wireless bills, those money, the money's really going for other purposes. Oh, okay. So, Katie, um, what are the chances, um, since we're in football season, uh, what are the chances that the Senate might fumble this uh, and not actually reenact uh, the moratorium and then all these states? What are the chances? A lot of people have said to me, oh, you know, I'm not really too exercised about it. The, they, there's a plan. They're going to do it. It's, it's not a big deal. You know, the Senate's got this, the leadership's got this all under control. It's going to be fine. So, you know, is it a possibility that this could get fumbled and they could fail to actually reinstate the tax moratorium? I feel like fumbling is kind of a thing. Um, haven't seen many touchdowns, to be honest. So, and I mean, it de- depends on what the Senate is going to do, what they think this grand thing is. If it's going to be a 10-year extension and they're going to grandfather states, it's not going to fly. Um, and I like these these notes that we've talked about, that these wireless taxes don't go towards a network. Thank goodness, because municipal broadband is horrid, but I'll talk about that some other time because that's not what this panel is about. Um, one of my favorite papers about this was done by the Center for Budget and Policy Studies. And they let us know that these taxes do go towards police and other things. The other thing that they do is this fabulous estimate of how much money states are losing because they're not taxing Internet access. Well, the states who currently tax Internet access they say would lose about $500 million. Every other state, $6.4 billion. Do you know where they got those numbers from? They actually got them from the sales tax. So let's talk about conflating numbers right now. Let's just go ahead and do that. This is from sales tax revenue. Which is a different issue than... It's a totally different issue. So we're pulling in 
other things to talk about internet access taxes. So this is completely disingenuous, especially if you read Appendix 1 to find out about the methodology. We don't know anything actually from this paper about what internet access taxes are actually doing. Now, when this happens, we miss the point of nexus. So one of the great things that PITFA, not ITFA, PITFA does is it shows you about nexus by talking about multiple and discriminatory taxes on electronic commerce. Now, states already have the ability at home to tax their sales tax on all products, but they've chosen, chosen, excuse me, not to do that. They have the ability within their own state to do that, to tax their own businesses, but they don't. Now, this is covered in the Permanent Internet Tax Freedom Act, which I think is very important. We're talking about nexus. Nexus means that where you are and currently under the Supreme Court, your physical location is what determines how you can tax. I believe that permanent internet tax fairness makes this a bit clearer, but I don't think it can go through on its own. There are a number of other nexus packages or bills, excuse me, that are related to this. And that's something that I've handed out, and I'll back off for a second because I think Nicole wanted to jump in. Okay. okay. Why, don't, why don't we do this? I have, I have one, one more question for the panel, but um, let's go to questions. And I really want to be clear if there's any questions about the difference between, like, the Internet access taxes and the moratorium that we've been talking about, which is the purpose for today, and this kind of other issue of remote – the collection of remote sales taxes, as if you're, you're buying a pair of shoes from Zappos.com. Actually, uh, I if, jump on that when you're done. <laughs> you, you, yeah, when you're done, I'll jump in. Okay. Um, if there's any questions, like just raise an eyebrow, kind of shrug your shoulders, give me give me the stink eye, whatever, and you know <laughs> we'll kind of go into more detail on that. But I you, you need to you need I think we need to make sure that we're not conflating or confusing those two issues um, as far as what types of tax they are. But um, in addition, in addition, I'm looking for audience questions. Anybody have any questions for the Sam, last? Sam, can I jump in? Real sure. Quick on that? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't put my talk. So I. I I think Tim's distinction is really important for everybody to hear when it comes to sort of confounding the different uh, legislative uh, proposals that are out there. You know, what we're talking about today is really related to the consumer use of mobile services, right, and the extent mm -hmm. to which those mobile services are taxed, uh, again, across different states. And I want everybody, we, we struggle with that, too, because, again, as people of color and vulnerable populations become avid users of mobile services, there is the other part of it, right, which in terms of revenue news that are related to purchases. Uh, we at MMTC actually just did something that's more so related, a paper uh, with Jonathan Orzag, an economist, related to, for example, the Marketplace Fairness Act, which has nothing to do with this. And honestly, we, we encourage that uh, the Senate and the House do not confound the two or put them together to be hasty, you know, to be of haste in their decision making because uh, in our paper we want to look at small business thresholds, for example, when it comes to those taxes. So I want to echo what Tim said to, to as, as policymakers in this room to really think about you know, what this particular uh, moratorium will do to ensure that, again, going back to, I think, what you've heard from all three of us so far, will encourage broadband adoption, encourage the experimentation and use of the Internet for those social benefits that I think all of us in this room are concerned about, and two, help us identify ways to put in a framework for mobile services that is much more realistic and reliable for the American consumer. And I think that there, in and of itself, is the price of the ticket, 
for why this conversation is very important and why the extension of this moratorium and the permanent extension of the moratorium is important because we should not have to keep debating and holding this hostage mm-hmm. every time you know there's a need because what's going to happen folks and again I can only speak for those populations that are very vulnerable is that they get put in a place where the discretionary income um, again uh, forces them to make choices over what medium they will use to access the internet. You know, and one other fact we haven't shared, wireless service is taxed higher than cable service. (laughs) And that should tell you something in and of itself when it comes to surcharges. So again, I think we all have to work very diligently as these devices become much more ubiquitous and ensuring that everybody is in and on without any risk, you know, factor that actually deters that. And again, mm-hmm. with 30 million people, folks, we still got a long way to go. And with mm-hmm. the amount of people that I shared with statistics, we clearly want to make sure that they use the Internet for those social benefits. We really want to make sure of that. Look at the next time you're on the Metro. And I always, you know, I try not to be the voyeur and kind of look at what people are doing on the Metro. (laughs) But I'm just amazed by the amount of people that pull out their devices to do a variety of functions. Let's just ensure that everybody can afford it, (laughs) right, and continue in that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to make clear, too, that I was bringing up this as an example of conflating the issues so I just wanted to be clear that that I'm not trying to drive our discussion off topic because that's <laughs> no 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 I know I just wanted to be clear that this is about conflating the issues. So when you're reading these types of papers, make sure that you look at the research methods. Make sure that you look at what's really going on because if you just glance through the paper, the executive summary, and don't look at the footnotes, if you don't look at the appendix, then you don't know what the true story is. So please, please, questions. Anybody have any before I have to ask my devil's advocate question? Or I go to Steve Del Bianco for his question. Steve? Thanks. Steve Del Bianco from NetChoice, and it's vital to stop states from adding $10 a month to every single consumer's home bill as well as the phone bill. But in addition, the moratorium also prevents discriminatory taxes on the online transactions that wouldn't be applicable in the offline world. And it's been used a couple of times. Once in 2012, a state court in Illinois struck down a law that would have treated, for tax purposes, treated online advertising completely different than the advertising you see in a newspaper or television. That's right. So thankfully, that law came in handy to block that discriminatory tax. Scott, you might even be aware of an instance, I think, that was used in the telecom world as well. Yeah, it was in Montana where uh, they have a gross receipts tax on on wireless service, and somebody downloaded something, and and Montana doesn't have a sales tax. And so if they'd bought that same, I don't know whether it was a song or a movie or whatever, but if they'd bought that at a store, there would have been no tax, but because they'd bought it and added to the wireless bill, the state had tried to to uh, impose their telecom tax on that, and that was invalidated. So it's a good point, Steve. I mean, there is the, the so-called multiple and discriminatory prong, which makes sure that states don't burden interstate commerce by taxing um, or electronic commerce by taxing uh, digital goods and services uh, at a higher rate than their uh, – I guess you'd call it their tangible counterparts. Could I just make one other quick comment on uh, something you said about uh, about the revenue impact? Because, you know, one of the things when you talk about the, the seven grandfathered states losing X dollars, I mean, 
it's very easy to, 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 to derive that number, but what you don't see are the benefits that are sort of embedded throughout the entire economy of what Nicole said. When, when more people can get on and use the inter, and, and use the internet to, whether it's get government service or purchase things, um, there's more productivity benefits for, for companies in all kinds of sectors, transportation, uh, they're just logistics management. So the fact that, that this moratorium has been in place to allow this marketplace to grow, you don't see the tax dollars that are flowing to the states because their economy is growing faster than it otherwise would have and because this new startup business has created jobs and somewhere. Uh, those are sort of hidden throughout uh, the economy. And so while it's very easy to say state, the state would lose this, you don't see what the, what the benefits are because – and there are studies – that have actually looked at this, and that, that's what I mentioned, they're, they're, why there's such a bipartisan consensus on this. The, the studies have shown it, but, you know, they're modeling. They're using models where the, the, the impact isn't as, it's, isn't as apparent to the sort of, sort of to the, un, uh, uh, the, the eyes of the sort of the, the non-specialists. Uh, so it's very important that people realize that it's not just about, you know, what states might lose. It's what gains would be prevented in the future if we allow uh, states and localities to impose 17, as much as 24 percent taxes on, on consumers' Internet access. And, you know, just a quick example, and I hate to pick on Chicago, but I'm going to anyway, right. because they they decided they didn't want to raise property taxes. And so instead of doing that, they imposed the – they increased the tax on each wireless device from $2.50 a month to almost $4 a month just for their um, – so-called 911 program, but the dirty little secret is, is it's not just funding 911, it's basically funding all of public safety. So you can see that potentially left unchecked um, as these devices, I mean, maybe in the future, maybe people have a tablet mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't actually, you know, isn't used for voice, and you, and you have other devices that connect to the Internet there's just, I mean, it could be a gold rush out there um, if there's not some kind of limitation placed yep. through the moratorium, and that in turn is going to hurt the development of new things we haven't even invented yet. So right. it's, it's a great point. And I actually, I mean, I want to echo that. I mean, one of the reasons we took this on, and for those of you not familiar, Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies is one of the um, only think tank in the Beltway uh, that deals with issues of concern for people, uh, for African Americans. One of the reasons that we took that on, too, was because this tax was showing up on people's bill, and they didn't know what it was for. And so uh, in the beginning, it was almost like the wireless companies were a collection agency for the states of this line item uh, that, again, was not clearly earmarked or understood by the consumer as to what it was, you know, what the, where it was being allocated. So we used to, when we started this debate, we got a lot of calls from people saying, I see this charge, and it all adds up, but I'm not quite clear where it's going. And so I think that's another distinction that we need to make in terms of that transparency. And, again, this in no way diminishes the fact that state and local governments are in need of additional revenue sources, my friends. You know, we all know that. But, again, as I said earlier, taxing uh, something that is so close to home that is already at a point where we're still trying to make it affordable because affordability still tops one of the barriers to adoption 
is probably not the best route to go right now and ever because we really want people to use the benefits of the internet. So I put that out there because you reminded me when we were looking at people's bills and they were just like, what is this? And I don't know about many of you, my parents the same way <laughs> when they looked at their wireless service bill for a long time, didn't want to go uh, mobile because of that. No, at least that one wasn't baked in so people could see right. what the tax was. Um, I wanted to go back to something that... Can I, can Scott, I go to the audience for a question? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, sir? Yeah. Um, aside from the I don't think there are any good arguments against. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things to just kind of hold out so maybe we can increase taxes in the future. Um, I I don't understand making it not permanent. This, this is so popular. Democrats, Republicans, across the board. This is this is an important issue for everyone. And now I'm going to go back to something that Scott said when we brought up um, digital digital goods being taxed differently. So there is on your chair, if you check it out, one of these things about digital goods. It's another nexus issue. That talks about non-discriminatory taxes. And so Scott, what did you specifically say? I kind of. Going back, my memory's not always great. With the Montana example, mm -hmm. yeah, they were they were taxing the digital download via a, a, a tax that applies to telecom service. When if you'd bought that same item in a store, there would have been no tax because they don't have a sales tax in Montana. And yeah. something like digital goods, which is also a nexus bill, would prevent that sort of thing from happening. It's separate, yeah, separate it's completely separate, but that definitely would be something that would help in that aspect as as we move forward in digital era. Yeah, we just have to, again, I, I want to just make sure I'm clear, and you can look at our website, mmtconline.org. We've looked at uh, taxation on digital goods and services, and we want to be in be sure that as that legislative proposal progresses, that small businesses are properly and accurately defined. Because there is still some more work to be done in that area. So I just need to put that out there, because we've been really strong about making sure we educate the public on that as well. The only other thing I might say to your question is that, you know, there's, I think there's some, some pure states' rights advocates yeah, states rights, yeah. who would say no, no how, no way on preemption. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, you, may, you might know differently, uh, and if you're hearing differently, let me know. I don't think the states are lobbying particularly hard no. uh, against extension of the moratorium. No. Um, maybe you're hearing differently from some of the mm -hmm. uh, folks uh, back in your states, but I don't get the sense that, that – they're even making that argument very strongly on the on the internet access moratorium issue. I've, I've heard the same too. Right, question from Rob. I'll play devil's advocate. Apparently, there are seven states that that believe that taxing has gone along just fine, and there are three states that decided that maybe it wasn't such a hot idea, and they repealed their taxes. Um, um, wouldn't a good libertarian let the states do what they want to do and, and, and let them sort it out? Well, we have an independent. We have. <laughs> <laughs> That's directed at anybody. <laughs> <laughs>